Happy New Year, everyone. In this exciting episode of Finding Fair Health, we have an amazing guest hosting the podcast. Javier Braish is a leadership fellow and GP trainee in Sheffield, who's working on a number of projects thinking about health equity in general practice. Javier chats to Dr. Deborah Wilmot, a GP in the northeast of England, who works for some of the week with a substance misuse service local to her. We hear fascinating insights into how and why working in this area of primary care is so rewarding, but also Deborah shares personal stories of years of experience working in this service. Not something you can learn from a book, she says. I came away from listening to this with that warm feeling you get when you hear someone talking honestly with true care and dedication to what they do. Thanks to both Deborah and Harvey for this incredible episode. Uh, welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. I have the pleasure of chatting with Deborah today. Deborah's own story comes from humble beginnings. She was first in the family to attend university and has gone on to achieve incredible things. Deborah has been a key player in substance misuse work. She's been doing great work with this team for over 20 years and has taken a significant leadership role throughout. Deborah was actually one of the first GPs to take the substance misuse roles, which previously remained under the remit of psychiatry. More amazingly, she started working in this field soon after she had given birth to twins. So thank you for being here today, Deborah. Tell us about the work you do with substance misuse. So, so first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a GP. That, that's what I do. Um, but I work one day a week um, in Gateshead, um, which is the northeast. Um, for, um, and I work for Gateshead Recovery Partnership, which is a partnership between the um, the local GPs that prescribe opiate substitute therapy, um, CGL, which is a national third sector organisation um, that does the more complicated um, prescribing, and then Recovery Connections, which provides the, the, the peer support to offer for our patients. So essentially what I do is I partly, because I have a leadership role, I'm the primary care lead, Partly, I support GPs that are providing substance misuse um, services for their patients. And then the other half of the day, the best day, the best bit of the day is working with the patients. So it's mainly patients with opiate addictions, um, lots are alcohol dependent. And I do, because I've carved out a role for myself in the pregnancy pathway, I often... and and dealing with patients that have been taking stimulants. So cocaine is the main one at the minute. It's very fashionable. It's really interesting because I, I guess in that 20 years, you've seen a, a kind of a, a change in kind of what substances are being misused. So as you mentioned, kind of cocaine being kind of fashionable, um, is there any significant changes you've noticed? And I, it's, it's really interesting. I do... Um, I, I do lots of teaching across the whole um, area of, to various different professionals and not professionals um, about substance misuse. And one of my favorite um, activities to do with them is to put them into groups and say, list me all the substances that you can misuse. And you can you can age people by what they say. <laughs> so my parents' generation will tell me about LSD and mushrooms and things like that. Children of the of the 70s and 80s will will tell me about glue and solvent abuse um and nowadays obviously heroin and opiates have been a problem throughout 
but um stimulants are a real problem at the moment they um it's cocaine is the same price now as it was when i was a teenager wow and i've been doing this job 20 years so how did you actually first get involved with substance misuse and what kind of motivated you to pursue this path so i am my last gp um training post was in an area of of severe deprivation it it classes as one of the deep end practices um so very few people were working there was lots of um, asylum seekers I was on first name terms with the interpreting service it was that kind of practice and the GPs there provided some substance misuse services and and they were just, they were really lovely people to work for, that those GPs were excellent role models. They scooped me, scooped me up as part of the team and, and I got to, to work alongside them. And I, I got to see what, what good they were doing. And this was back in 2004. I was pregnant with my twin boys at that point. Um, and then once I CCT'd, I joined the Career Start Scheme, which these days would be called the Neuter Fellowship Scheme. And um, as part of that, you, you got a session a week to do some CPD um, activity. And I went and did substance misuse. And again, there was the team that I worked with was really well led. It was a really lovely bunch of people to work with. And I loved it and I stayed. And that team was they were brand new at the time. They were one of the first community interest companies. And it was a G- GPs, a pharmacist and a counsellor who set up this service um, together. And we essentially took patients that were previously being looked after by psychiatry or by the criminal justice system. And they came and had this more sort of primary care, sort of idealised um, service. Mm-hmm. So that's how I ended up in it. Just I was when you were mentioning that, and I was just curious when the patients made that transfer. um, How did they find it? Did they feel that they were getting a more holistic service, or did they find that actually the kind of previous service was meeting their needs? Um, Patients never like change. Well, human beings (laughs) never like change. Change change is tough. And um, and we're asking people to make huge changes to their life in substance misuse. Um, so I th- think some of the patients found found it a, a difficult transition. Often they don't. Often when they first came, they didn't want to talk about the holistic side of things. It was I used to get an awful lot of "Can I just have my script and go?" Yeah, because. Often the patients see the prescription as the whole of treatment, where it isn't. It's one third of the treatment. The other two thirds are your peer support and your psychosocial interventions. So that was a that was a difficult transition for, for the patients to understand that we were genuinely interested in all of this other stuff, and we we will we we might not be able to fix it, but we can empathise and we can signpost you to the right people, or we can pull the right people in. So that was that was a a difficult but really satisfying transition. The other thing that the patients found difficult was um, we expected people to turn up on time for their appointments, <laughs> or roughly on time, you know. Well, I was just saying, I think that's a problem just for anyone these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think their previous service had been very much 
as long as you turn up, it's fine. And and obviously in primary care, we we used to 10 minute appointments or 15 minute appointments and and primary care runs because it's a slick operation, isn't it? And when we started putting those kind of boundaries in place with chaotic patients that weren't used to boundaries, Mm -hmm. that was um, difficult for them. But, you know, they... Once once it got settled in, it was it was it was a lovely, lovely service. And we went the criminal justice service. We we're in a separate building and everything. Oh, brilliant. Just curious then. So those people who did struggle with kind of um, routine and things like that. Um, and I can imagine, as you said, quite a lot of the cohort of patients may have had that. Was it just that with time they got used to that? Or was it that you had to adapt the service to kind of meet in the middle for both of you? Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of compromise um, on on everybody's part. Um, it's really difficult to get people that have never been taught how to use services properly mm, to use really a service properly. You know, if, if you've been brought up in a household where you didn't go to school or you didn't go on time or you never attended any of your appointments as you should, for me to then turn around and say, look, your appointment was two hours ago. I'm not seeing you it's Mm. it's it's a it's a difficult compromise and then always in the back of my head I've got you're safer in treatment than out of treatment yeah so it's not being punitive Mm. not not letting the service just become a drop-in service because that doesn't help anybody you can't Mm. have therapeutic consultations when the waiting room's full of people or people are coming in at two minutes to five on a Friday it's not fair on the team it's not fair on the patients it's not fair on the pharmacists that have then got to dispense the prescriptions so compromise all around yeah that's really interesting so you you know I mentioned how you've been doing this for over 20 years which is incredible and it just got me thinking how have you been able to do this job for so long without burning out I think I'm I'm lucky because I've always been a portfolio GP. So even, you know, my first day post CCT was I'm going to be doing general practice for some of the week and I'm going to be doing substance misuse for some of the week. And then I went off and did out of hours work as well to boost my income, because when you've got twin babies, you're not going out. (laughs) (laughs) So. So the fact that I've always done it as portfolio GP really helps because it is, you know, it is emotionally um, challenging work. So knowing that I'm going to do it some days and not other days has really helped. It is a very different um, pace of work as well in substance misuse. In general practice, you know, you're, you're making decisions and you buy yourself often and you're making them quickly and then you're moving on to the next thing. And it's that constant chain of decision-making, which can be exciting, but it can be quite wearing. Whereas in substance misuse, my my appointments are much longer. I rarely make decisions all by myself. And normally it's in conjunction with the, the recovery coordinators or the recovery workers or the nurses or whoever else is part of the team. So it means I've got chance to think about things deeply and get to know the patients better and having what a luxury having these long appointments and and the team is it's that's been across whichever organization I've worked for the team of substance misuse has always been the thing that sort of keeps you keeps you going because everybody's there for the same reason 
Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, you know, you, you, it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a really well-run service and I'm sure that's part of the great work you've kind of done to help mould it. And you've sort of kind of covered some of this, but what do you find to be the most rewarding parts of the job? Do you know, none of my patients woke up one day and went, do you know, I think I'll become addicted to heroin today. I mean, they just don't do that. You know, most of them haven't had the same chances in life that that we all have. You know, they, they you know, weren't brought up in a supportive household with food on the table and went to school every day. You know, and it's every middle class's parents nightmare. All oh, my children will get in with the wrong crowd and end up living on the streets. And, you know, that's not the story I hear. Mm-hmm. There might be a handful of those patients off in private rehab, but my patients have generally been brought up in households where substance misuse is part of the norm. It's their coping mechanism. And it was really brought home to me when and I still remember it. I was looking after this lady who'd been pregnant at delivery had had the baby taken off her and she could have two hours a week of contact with this baby in a contact centre, hopefully to see if they could be reunited eventually if if the patient could jump through enough hoops to prove to social services. And she stopped going. She stopped going to the care and, and mm. the contact. And I said to her, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you behaving like this? And she just said, you know, it's just too hard. It's the same contact centre where I used to see my mum. And I just thought, you know, I want to break that cycle. That's what we do. So I'm aiming to break that cycle, provide the care. I also, there there are some days where I'm acutely aware that I'm the only person that might have been nice to, to my patient that day. Yeah. And when I was doing my substance misuse part two certificate, we had to do a field trip as part of it. (laughs) And I went to one of the charitable organisations and they were offering sort of alternative um, therapies, you know, auricular acupuncture and this black box therapy and aromatherapy and things. And I was like, really? (laughs) And they were like, ask these people, you know, go and ask that lady over there. When was the last time somebody touched her? in a kind way that wasn't an examination or wasn't in a way that she could then pay for pay for her drugs so that kind of thing if I can be a a good bit of somebody's day that's not ever having good bits in their day then that's the aim I mean that's incredible it's really you know heart moving and it's you know it breaks your heart because like, like you said I think a lot of it is um they have not no one's chosen this and a lot of it's circumstantial you know just you're born in the wrong place to a not ideal family or you know and like you said you're trying to break that cycle and I think we don't always appreciate that so you know yeah gosh what a moving story and so we know that on a purely scientific level because we've done a lot of emotions on a purely scientific (laughs) level we know if you're in treatment you're less likely to die and that there's there's loads of evidence that show in countries across the world, once they start offering opiate substitute therapy, the drug related deaths go down. Mm. And um, I remember one morning dropping my children at school and the parents that are listening to this will recognize this of throwing your children out of a moving car as as you're on your way to work. <laughs> and I jokingly said to the kids, come on, get out the car. I've got lives to save. <laughs> and the kids rolled their eyes at me and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, of course you, you don't save lives, mum. 
And I had a little moment where I thought, actually, on a Friday, I do. Mm-hmm. I do save lives on a Friday. And if I'm not saving lives, I'm at least improving lives. And yeah. I'm not just improving the life of that patient. I'm improving the life of their family and their neighbours. And there's a lot of research that shows by having one person in opiate substitute therapy, the ripple effect of how many people it then benefits them. Mm. So if you're not worrying about your son ending up in jail because he's committing crime to feed his drug habit, you're not worried about the neighbor's son or the neighbor's daughter burglaring you because they've got a habit so you can sleep better in your bed at night, less crime in the area, you know, less people in A&E with injection injuries, less people in the criminal justice system. It benefits everybody. Yeah, definitely. And and I think this is a good time just to expand a bit on that, because um, one of the things I was thinking before we had this chat was about the stigma of substance misuse. And I think you've just made an excellent case for why we should be promoting and advocating people to be in services. You know, you've made the excellent point of the scientific evidence showing that your death rates are going to decrease. And I'm sure you've probably seen it even amongst clinicians, but kind of from patients and clinicians alike, how have you found an effective way or how do you think we break that stigma so patients can feel non-judged and can access these services? I think there's no there's there's no magic answer. It is you you treat the patients like you treat anybody else, like you treat your colleagues, like you treat the other the other patients. Um, you know, as I say, we might be the only person that's been kind to them that day. Um, Boundaries are important. So I have lots of conversations where I say, hello, I'm Dr. Wilmot. You know, I'm the prescriber here. You know, we have a few rules and the rules are I will treat you with respect. I will see you if you're on time for your appointment. I will give you the best evidence based care that I've got to my ability. And in return, I expect the same back. I expect you to turn up roughly on time you know, behave in the waiting room. Please don't be rude to the receptionist because they're really, they're doing the best, the job that they can. And it's having that conversation about, you know, we're both in this together. And and I've had patients say to me, oh, what do you know? You with your perfect life and your perfect job and your perfect family. And I say to them, I know, you're absolutely right. But in this situation, I'm the expert in evidence-based medicine and you're the expert in being you. And what we'll do is we'll try and come to a compromise. Sorry to do I, I just want to say, I love that line. I'm like, I might have to steal that for other things because I think that's such an important point, you know, especially as clinicians, we're the experts in our evidence, but you're, you know, the person is the expert in being them. So I, yes, thank you. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 you've got to have these little tricks that help you sort of get get through, I think. With other health professionals, and I found I find this a bigger challenge. I think it's about education and explaining, although the behaviour is unacceptable, I'm going to explain why. I'm going to make it understandable. So, you know, the the biases that we get is I genuinely had a lady discharged from a postnatal ward, having had a cesarean section on a Friday afternoon. She had 37 pence to her name and they didn't give her any analgesia. No, gosh. Because obviously they thought she was going to go off and misuse it. 
So having those conversations where you explain actually leaving somebody um, in pain makes them more likely to relapse, not le- not less likely. And just the, from a humanitarian point of view, you know, just yes, be yeah. humane. I mean, it's always, and you, you see it. I mean, you must see it more than I do, but it's just so sad. It, yeah, it is. And I think the other thing as well, and the, the drug-seeking behaviour, I find that that's probably the thing that most people struggle with, be it the receptionists, the clinicians, the pharmacists, any, anybody. It's the drug-seeking behaviour. And my light bulb moment was when I was doing my part one way back in like 2004. And the, the doctor that was leading that said, substance misuse is a relapsing, remitting illness and we should treat it as such. And that really resonated with me. So the people will be in recovery and then they might not be in recovery. Also, recovery might be different for some people and not for others. Our type two diabetics that eat cream cakes and smoke we do not chuck them off our list. We continue to see them. We continue to provide long-term condition care. We do it non-judgmentally, but we give advice. And we should be doing the same with our substance misuse patients. And here is the clincher. If we treat the the addiction, if, if we get people so they are not dependent and they are in recovery, the drug seeking behavior goes Mm. The drug-seeking behaviour is part of the illness. It's not part of the person's personality. Mm. That's a really interesting and objective way to look at it because I guess people listening in, uh, you know, I, I wonder, especially for myself, you know, really junior clinician in all of this, and the drug-seeking is definitely one of the hardest aspects. So I guess framing it where you say that's part of the illness as opposed to a personality trait. What have you found to, to any clinician that is listening in and they do have patients who are perhaps currently in that drug seeking part of their illness? What would you advise them? How, how best to approach that situation with the patient? As I say, a lot of it is your own attitudes. Once you once you know, you know, this is this is a relapsing remitting condition and I'm going to treat it as such. That helps. It's, I think it's better if you can separate the behaviours from the person. And and we all know that, you know, we're all used to doing feedback. And so this the behavior is part of the illness. Take advice from from people. Um, we we've I struggle often with secondary care where they will ask for our advice after the fact. They'll ring us up and say, Oh, we gave we gave them 50 mils of methadone. Is that all right? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so take advice from the and listen to the patients don't try and blag it mm. if you don't know what the patient's telling you they know that you don't know and be mm. honest say i'm really sorry what is a bag of heroin yeah. what and and they will they will tell you mm. whereas if you try and play it cool and pretend that you know they they yeah you've got to be open and honest but the reason why substance misuse is so lovely is because it's all communication skills. Mm. A joke can say, oh, it's really easy to be a GP with a special interest in this. All I've got to do is learn three drugs. I only prescribe two of them. <laughs> and I just, I've just got to communicate. But I think try not to let the problems escalate in the first place. You know, so that's those early boundaries yeah. and practice boundaries. You know, that mm. the whole practice needs to sing from the same song sheet. Yeah staying calm with the patients and I think 
sticking to your own ethics, sticking to your own knowledge. And I think this is where GP trainees often struggle is they'll say, no, we can't do that. And the patient will, will go, yeah, but what about, but what about? And you start questioning yourself. And if you then have a little like chink of, oh, I'm yeah. not, maybe I'm not right here. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. That's when you get into those sort of, it feels a bit like a battle. Mm. Whereas if you, if you, if you know where you are, you know, this is, this is the thing that I can do for you. And I can't do the thing that you want me to do because of X, Y, and Z. And stick into that. One technique we use is the broken record. You know, okay. I hear what you're saying about you not sleeping, but I really won't be able to prescribe you tamazepam. Hmm. You know, um, let's look at your sleep. No, I won't be able to prescribe you tamazepam. Have we looked at some sleep work? Have we looked at this? No, I won't be prescribing you tamazepam. And then, and yeah, and this is the reason why I'm not going to prescribe it. One is it's not a long term solution. Two, you're already drinking alcohol. You're taking opiates. We're running the risk of slowing down your breathing. I don't know how much of this combination you would need to slow your breathing and your breathing will slow to the point where it stops. Mm. And when it stops, you die. And I had to add that bit in about 10 years in. Because about mm. 10, I was always, I always gave the same story. You know, your breathing yeah. slows from opiates, your breathing slows from alcohol, your breathing slows from benzos. And then it slows to the point where it stops. And a patient said to me, and what happens when you stop breathing? Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, right. Yeah. I have been miscommunicating this. That's a great point for us to learn, you know, just yeah. be very clear about what's happening. Because not, it may seem really simple to us, but you know, not everyone will click that. You stop yes. breathing. Um, yeah. So it's so it's it's offering alternatives or explain why you you can't do what it is that that, that you want to be doing. Be fair. Hmm. Sometimes I have to just listen to my own inner voice and think: Am I making this decision because it's the right thing to do clinically? Am I making this decision because it's the right thing to do for the patient's safety or for the public's safety? Or am I making this decision because actually I'm in a real grump with myself because they were late, they were rude. The previous patient had wound me up. Am I being, am I being fair here? And how, and how do you do so, that? Well, it's you're in a busy clinic and let's just say, you know, I know it's it's a bit calmer than when you're in your GP days, but let's say your last patient has just wound you up and, you know, you you are in a bit, things at home, the, the twins have made a horrible mess and at home and, you know, you're going back to it. Um, and the next patient comes in and and you, you have that internal monologue. How do you just take a moment to have that chat with yourself? Where do you find the space or, you know, what's your approach? I think having done it for a long time, you you, you start noticing those cues when when a conversation starts to become that backwards and forwards thing, um, that's that's a cue for me of what's what's gone wrong here. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I will say to a patient, Ooh, we seem to have got off on the wrong foot with each other here, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Can we start again? That, that's really good. And do, do you find that diffuses the situation? Yeah. And and I use I don't just use that in my substance misuse work. It's mm. it's it's one of those conversations that I just yeah. use all the time. That's a great idea. So you've mentioned such incredible things about um, what it is you do and, it, and you've made such a strong argument for why we should be wanting to help people 
misuse. And I really appreciate the objective approach of looking at, at it as a relapsing, remitting illness and seeing it as a part of the disease as opposed to the person and you know not saying they're one of the same so I want to go a bit abstract here <laughs> if, if, if you had a magic wand uh, what would your ideal substance misuse service look like five years from now yeah so I I would like the substance misuse service to be integrated into primary care generally I think GPs are best placed to do this because what we do is holistic care. That's what we're good at. We're brilliant at it. We're excellent communicators. We understand the impact on the family. We understand the impact on the mental health, the physical health. So in an ideal world, 90% of the patients would be being cared for in primary care by their GP. There's always going to be a handful that are maybe too chaotic um, for primary care, but you're going to get that with all normal distributions. Yeah, I would have the recovery coordinators would be in in the community. So you wouldn't be going to a special building for your substance (laughs) misuse. The building where everybody knows that's where they go. So the recovery coordinators might be seeing you in a community centre or the place where the mother and baby clinics held mm. all the pharmacists would all dispense opiate substitute therapy because at the minute they all don't right. for various reasons and at the minute we're, I'm really struggling that's one of one of my big challenges is finding chemists for patients right and the other thing and it's last but not least it's last but most is all my patients would be accepting of the peer support offer and it's and I don't I suspect it's because I'm saying please you need to go for your peer support Mm. I wonder if if we had more patients that were now in recovery and sort of health ambassadors and I used I used to work with a lady that was the most amazing recovery ambassador she would sit in clinic with me and she could say all the things that I couldn't say brilliant she'd say to the patients come on let's just stop you there you can't kid a kidder (laughs) <laughs> I've done all of these. Um, so I would have, yeah, I'd have a, I'd have more peer support offer out there. I'd have all the pharmacies on board. I'd have all the GPs on board, and I'd have the recovery coordinators in Starbucks <laughs> or Costa or whichever local coffee shop that you use. <laughs> but I, I would, I would have that stigma removed. There wouldn't yeah. be the central place where you go, so everybody sure. knows why you're going through the door. I think that's brilliant. And I'm going to be a bit cheeky and just ask one more question on that. How do you think we could get there? I think it's, 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 there's lots of prongs that need. (laughs) (laughs) Or or should I say, what, what do you see to be the most feasible thing to achieve there next? So, you know, if you're thinking about trying to improve the service overall, what is the next feasible step we can take to help? I think, I think it's partly um, education and and training in primary care, because often, you know, I know I'm a GP myself. I know how busy we are and I know how snowed under the receptionists are. And I know how, you know, we've got 10 minute appointments and we're we're rattling through everything each morning or afternoon or all day. And the thought of taking on some more chaotic patients fills us with with dread but actually it's a really rewarding part of the job and you don't we don't get to say 
we're not dealing with the patients with schizophrenia because we don't we, we find it a bit hard or I, I, I always have to look up spirometry every single time I make a diagnosis <laughs> of COPD don't really like doing it yeah. because it's not really how my brain works but I don't get to choose not to do it so yeah it's true so part of me is about that sort of attitudinal and skills based in primary care but also the attitudes coming from the people that commission the services mm. I think the the people that commission the services don't always fully understand just how good we are in primary care yeah and just how brilliant we are at what we do probably attitudes across across the board hearts and minds I've got to win no that's brilliant thank you for that and um we don't have much time but I want to ask as a final question what is there a um a, podcast book or resource that you found really inspirational to you that you would recommend to anyone listening in I had a thought about, I had a think about this beforehand <laughs> you, you were going to ask me it and actually I think most of the learning I've done in substance misuse has actually been from the people I've worked with from the team yes. and the patients so I'm afraid I haven't got anything inspirational about substance misuse but I was thinking about what what it is that makes us human and why do we make mistakes as humans and why do we make poor choices and so there's a really good TED talk by Brian Goldman called why doctors make mistakes Mm -hmm. and it's a it's a really humble talk it lasts about 15 minutes talking about the the shame that we feel when when we make a mistake and how difficult it is to to talk about and I just think we're no different from our patients yeah we we were given different choices um different uh, choices at the beginning of our lives so I think that that for me I find it a really humbling talk that and then the other one which is much more light-hearted is (laughs) a podcast series called Cautionary Tales and it's by Tim Hartford, and it's about mistakes that people have made and very much that Swiss cheese model of lots of little mistakes all lining up to cause catastrophically big ones. And it's a really good, lighthearted but interesting listen in the car on the way home from work before you get back to being a wife, a husband, a partner, <laughs> a, a mother a football coach whatever it is doing your evening it's just something to just go oh yeah it's been so incredible chatting with you you know you've really enlightened me you know and I hope that people listening in have got more of an insight into what it's like I think there's probably a bit of fear around the topic because people don't really know much about it so it's so lovely to hear a really honest talk about it and someone who clearly loves what they do um so From the bottom of my heart, thank you, Deborah, for all the great work you do. And thank you for coming to have a chat with me. And thank you for having me. So thanks for listening, everyone. That was Deborah and Harvey chatting about the substance misuse service that Deborah works in in the northeast of England. I massively enjoyed listening to this and I hope you all did too. Please do check out lots of the links mentioned in the episode in the show notes. And as always, more health equity resources on the Fair Health website. Please do join us for our next episode of Finding Fair Health. Um, But in the meantime, wishing you all a great start to 2023.